You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, it's Monday, and that means it is Fired Up Radio time right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. I host the show each week. And as in every week, we're going to get into the mechanics of the political system here in the U.S., so let's get it started, all right? Uh, the first thing we want to do, as we always do, is check in on where we are in our progress battling the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, as of today, there are just under 30 million cases, uh, 29.4 million to be exact, and 535,000 people have died from the disease. On the vaccine front, 106.6 million doses have been administered to date, and that includes people who have uh, received at least one dose, and in some cases have received two doses of the vaccine. We also have uh, final approval of the emergency use authorization for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So now that is officially part of the arsenal. And information tells us that there are at least two more vaccines coming to the market over the coming uh, weeks and months. So there will be a total of perhaps as many as five vaccines out there helping us fight this pandemic and get it under control. Uh, What we are seeing in terms of the numbers is we still see a continual drop in the average number of cases per day going down week over week. Same thing with the number of deaths even though that number lags the number of cases by some weeks, we're seeing a decline in the number of deaths per day as well. And that is, you know, a positive sign. We want to make sure that we are working toward getting this disease down to the nuisance level uh, that is the same uh, level of uh, attention and attack that we have with the flu virus, where it just becomes part of our normal annual routines in terms of vaccinations that we have to get. So we're making progress. Uh, We are continually moving toward the light at the end of the tunnel, but that doesn't mean that we need to let up off the gas right now and that we still need to follow what the medical and scientific communities are telling us. And that's wearing our mask and socially distancing and, you know, practicing good hygiene, washing our hands frequently, etc. And in light of, you know, these calls for continued vigilance on our part, Uh, We have uh, still the growing number of states that are relaxing or eliminating restrictions on activities due to COVID. Of course, as we've talked about over the past couple of shows, Texas has led the way, but other states are following suit. And, you know, truthfully, it's it's in my opinion, it's too soon. We are, yes, we are seeing progress being made. Yes, the rates of infection and death Uh, and hospitalization from the coronavirus pandemic are going down. But our numbers are still the highest in the world in terms of the overall impact this pandemic is having on us. So we need to be battling it on all fronts, not just the vaccine, but also our own individual mandates for keeping ourselves, our communities, and our country safe. So, you know, action plan continues, everyone. Make sure that you're doing your part as well as getting the vaccine when it comes out and it becomes available to you. Uh, We are still, there are discussions going on and there's been news out there about the number of people who are still hesitant about the vaccine. 
Uh, and even though that number is declining, it is still a significant percentage, somewhere north of uh, 25 to 30 percent of the population still has some level of vaccine hesitancy. So, you know, it just is a matter that we just have to keep talking about it. We have to keep the education flowing. We have to keep the information flowing, and that information has to be truthful. Uh, one thing to give credit to the Biden administration for is that they have been giving us a very, very honest window into what's going on in the battle against the coronavirus pandemic. So we just need to pay heed to what they're telling us and, you know, do our part in order to help you know, get rid of this, this virus. Uh, but right now it looks like as we go through uh, now entering spring and soon summer, that we are on target to see significant number of schools reopening in the fall and, uh, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, meetings. Uh, President Biden and the medical and scientific community are already telling us that we can, you know, have, especially if we've already been vaccinated, that we can, in fact, have small group gatherings. Uh, you know, we can uh, meet with people and, and socialize with people, you know, that have been vaccinated as well. And even those that have not yet been vaccinated, as long as we continue to wear our masks, practice our social distancing and do the things we can, we now can start to, to ease into a little bit more social interaction uh, around the country. But that doesn't mean that we should go crazy wild with it. Uh, We're right in the midst of you know, the, the spring break season. I know that there were reports coming out of Florida that as many as 300,000 people uh, were gathering in locations around the state uh, celebrating uh, spring break. Um, you know, we will see what happens in terms of those becoming super spreader events uh, over the coming weeks. Uh, the, the, the best advice uh, to offer is use your common sense. Take a, you know, common sense approach to your health safety and the health safety of those around you. Remember, uh, the mask that you wear doesn't protect you. It protects others from you. And the mask that they wear protect you from them. So, you know, it, it, it's something we've all got to uh, stay in touch with and stay on top of and just keep going forward with that. So on that front, uh, we are making some progress. Uh, on other news and in other big news that came out of last week, obviously the biggest story that came out was that the American Rescue Plan, uh, the COVID relief effort uh, put forward by the uh, Biden administration and the Democrats, uh, was signed into law by President Biden on Thursday. And we are being told that you know, stimulus payments uh, will be going out and will be hitting people's bank accounts, particularly those who have electronic deposit uh, as early as, you know, this coming week. So many of you will begin to see that money show up in your accounts, as well as some of the other things that this bill will offer or this law now will offer. And we talked about those last 
last week, you know, in terms of funding for school reopenings and funding for vaccine distribution, uh, funding for uh, small business and, you know, the, the survival loans that our small businesses need to reopen and stay open, uh, as well as, you know, other provisions in the bill that are going to provide some greatly needed assistance. Uh, the child, ta- child care tax credit is, is another one. It is a welcome, welcome uh, relief to the American people uh, that this bill is now law and that these plans are now starting to move forward. So we will keep you posted on, on the progress. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the bill and you know, its, ba- its battle and journey through the political system in a moment. Uh, but, you know, we all just need to stop and take a minute and really appreciate that, you know, there is help on the way. So, you know, in, in bringing this bill to law, one of the things to understand is that this bill was uh, passed through the House and through the Senate on a purely Democrat vote. That is, no Republicans voted in favor of this legislation in either body. Uh, and it was done solely on the Democratic majorities. Now, you know, this is an interesting turn in that, you know, the Democrats uh, appear to be poised to start exercising uh, their majorities, uh, slim though they may be, uh, in, in many more instances. They're also indicating that they are not afraid to use the budget reconciliation power that comes out of the uh, Finance Committee in Congress uh, to get legislation through on, you know, simple majority votes. Uh, And, you know, while, you know, the Democrats seem to be moving forward on this and taking advantage of their majorities, something that, you know, the the last Democratic administration, that of President Obama, seemed to be a lot more hesitant to do. Uh, but it, it's clear that, you know, President Biden, counting on his years of experience as being a, a member of the Senate, understands how the, the game's played, understands what he needs to do. And he's going to, you know, utilize his majorities in every way that he can uh, up through the midterms and then see where the cards come down after the midterm elections. But, you know, it, it is clear that the Republicans have moved back into their 2009-2010 playbook of, you know, obstruction at every turn as, you know, as best they can. When these bills were going through the Senate, the Republicans introduced hundreds of amendments onto the bill in an effort to slow it down. They introduced a requirement that the entire bill be read into the record 680 something pages I think was the length Uh, and it took about uh, 10 or 11 hours to read that entire bill into the 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 record of the Senate so you know the the games that are being played here uh, are games that we the American people need to pay attention to and we need to weigh in with our elected officials on what we think of these tactics uh, that are being performed. Um, you know, about a year ago, I did a broadcast and I talked about uh, strategy and tactics, uh, what they are and the differences between the two. Uh, in a nutshell, 
Strategy is a, a plan to action and tactics are putting that plan into action. Well, we, we now see what the Republican strategy is and that is one of you know obstruction and distraction and doing anything they can to try and delay uh, the legislation that's being moved forward by the Democratic Party. Uh, most currently, it is the uh, HR1 bill and the SR1 uh, bill, which will in fact uh, restore much of the teeth to the Voting Rights Act, among other things, uh, and, and hopefully put a halt to what we've seen in the last uh, year or so or a couple of years where you know Republican states are enacting some very, very uh, draconian voter suppression methods. And they're not even being you know, subtle or covert about it, everybody. They're doing this out in the open. They are actively and openly promoting legislation at the state levels uh, in about 43 states as of last count that I saw over the weekend uh, that will in some way uh, infringe, restrict, uh, or you know, diminish the ability of voters to exercise their right to vote. And in particular, these bills are being targeted. They're being targeted toward you know, anti-Republican voting blocks. Uh, that would be people of color, that would be poor people, uh, that would be, you know, urban areas where, you know, um, the majority populations uh, are, you know, in some cases minority, and they tend to vote Democratic. So, you know, it, it's, it's out in the open now. You can go and Google, you know, voter restriction legislation and, you know, get a sense of some of the things they're doing. Uh, a few highlights include such things as eliminating the number of polling places uh, or reducing that number, uh, reducing or eliminating locations for drop boxes, uh, you know, heavy restrictions on and rules on mail-in voting. All of these things that led to the overwhelming number of votes that were cast in the 2020 election and obviously uh, the fact that the Republicans lost uh, that election in terms of control of the White House uh, and control of the Senate. So they are turning around now and they are enacting these legislative actions at the state level in order to uh, restrict uh, or suppress uh, the non-Republican vote in those, those markets uh, to basically look to regain uh, control of the country through the political process. Uh, it, it's been stated uh, there was uh, a, an official of the Republican Party who said really clearly more than a year ago, uh, the Republicans don't want everybody to vote. Uh, they don't want that because when everyone votes, Republicans don't win. Republicans in this country are outnumbered uh, almost two to one by Democrat and independent voters. And if those two uh, blocks of voters are, are voting you know, in, in unison or a large portion of the independents are voting with the Democratic Party, then you know, Republicans are outgunned at just about every turn. And we saw that happen uh, in the 2020 election 
you know, with the, the Republican loss of the, the presidency by more than 7 million votes, and we saw it very clearly evidenced at the state level by what happened in the Georgia Senate runoffs, where both of the seats that were up for grabs in Georgia were won by Democrats in an overwhelmingly uh, Democratic victory. And these victories were led by voters out of the major metropolitan areas in Georgia, most of which tend to be uh, heavily minority districts. And, you know, essentially the, the voting actions of, you know, people of color and, you know, black women and black men uh, basically turned Georgia from, you know, red to blue from a legislative standpoint. So, you know, the Republicans looked at that and are looking at that and are coming up with all these strategies to try and, you know, minimize and reduce the number of Democratic votes that can be cast in an election. And it, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, the, the key thing, the foundational principle of our democracy is that everyone has the right to vote. Every citizen has a right to vote in this country. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you should not be allowing anything that's going to infringe on you know, your right as a voter. Because remember, what may affect Democrats you know, in this election cycle may in, uh, affect Republicans in coming elect election cycles. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. So we've got to stay strong and stay vigilant to make sure that the, the access to the ballot box is not restricted in any way possible. And the two bills I mentioned, H.R. 1 and S.R. 1 in the House and in the Senate, uh, look to do that, among other things, uh, restoring some of the controls and the oversight on rules to change voter registrations and polling place locations and other suppression tactics that were initially in the Voting Rights Act but were stripped out by the Supreme Court a few years ago uh, by, you know, a, a Republican-led effort to, you know, eliminate or, you know, snip away at the edges or diminish the Voting Rights Act if they couldn't get rid of it altogether. So, you know, we have to stay focused, stay on point, and make sure that we are watching what our state legislatures are doing in terms of voting so that we can, in fact, make sure that our votes and our rights to vote are protected. And speaking of uh, voting in the states and uh, actions that are being taken in states. Uh, in last week's show, I brought up a bill that had been introduced in the legislature in Kentucky that would uh, criminalize words that offend police officers, that would make uh, taunting or insulting uh, or, you know, uh, saying words that, in, in, the, in the terms of the bill, a reasonable person would take offense to and might lead to a violent reaction to those words, it would make that a crime punishable by up to three months in jail, a $250 fine, and for those that are on state assistance, a loss of those state assistance benefits for three months, 
Well, that bill is now uh, moving through the Senate and it is it has come out in the analysis that there's an even uh, a, a, a kicker in this bill. And one of the things that, you know, this bill, if it gets passed by the Kentucky Senate and the Kentucky legislature and it gets signed by the governor, uh, one of the things that this bill would do, it would also authorize the arrest of anyone distributing anything that could be used as a weapon against police officers. And the, the example they're using is uh, anyone who is giving out, if you have a, a, a protest march or a demonstration march going on and you know it, it gets out of hand, anyone who had been distributing water bottles to the, to the crowd uh, you know, because it gets hot in Kentucky, uh, would be subject to arrest and punished by a, uh, a misdemeanor of disorderly conduct in the second degree, a class B misdemeanor, punished by a fine of $250 and up to 90 days in jail. So let that sink in for a minute. You're at a, a, a protest march. It's a hot day. And there are, you know, people and organizations out there who are, you know, giving water to people attending the, the march. And, you know, they can get arrested for giving people water if that march turns uh, violent and those water bottles are, in fact, hurled at police. So, you know, this, this just struck me as a, an extension of the the craziness I felt when I, I talked about this bill last week. Uh, basically, Kentucky is saying you can protest. You have a First Amendment right to protest. However, this protest is going to be quiet. You're going to march down the street. You're going to sing your Kumbaya songs or your We Shall Overcome songs, and you're going to go home. Uh, if you engage with the police officers uh, and you insult them or, you know, say, you know, curse them out or, you know, whatever, uh, or the, the, the march becomes, you know, more heated and water bottles are thrown. Uh, the people, not only the people that throw the water bottles are subject to arrest, but the people who distributed the water bottles to the crowd in the first place are subject to arrest. Uh, it, this bill you know, is is pointing in a very dangerous direction. Uh, it is skirting very carefully that line between, you know, our protected rights under the First Amendment, you know, the right to assemble and to peacefully uh, air our grievances with our government, uh, the right to free speech. And it, I would not be surprised, as, as I've heard several other uh, people in the media have said, I would not be surprised if in very short order, if this bill gets signed into law, that it doesn't start its march up through the court system uh, toward either the Kentucky Supreme Court or the federal Supreme Court uh, to be argued uh, on First Amendment grounds. Uh, I think this law just goes too far. I get what you know they are, are going for. Uh, they are looking looking at ways to diffuse, you know, situations that can turn violent. Think January 6th as an example. Um, but this, 
this is going, you know, too far in, in the wrong direction. Uh, it is too easy for this law to be interpreted subjectively. Uh, a police officer uh, or police officers may feel that some comments made at them by protesters uh, are offensive and decide to arrest them because they, they offended the police officers with their language. So, you know, it, this is something that we're going to have to keep a close eye on to see the progress of this bill. Uh, for those of you who live in Kentucky, I urge you to communicate with your state legislators and urge them to reconsider uh, what this bill would do in terms of infringing on our First Amendment rights to protest and to speak freely in this country. Uh, it, it just moves us in a very dangerous direction. So something to think about there. Uh, we're going to take our break here. When we come back after the break, we're going to pick up on a couple of other uh, interesting news uh, articles items that happened in the past week. You're listening to Fired Up Radio right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you.
and welcome back. We're here at Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, and we're talking about the news that has come out about uh, politics and economy and other subjects uh, over the last week. Uh, one of the things that did come out as I just finished talking about the American recovery plan uh, that the Biden administration passed on party lines this past week and President Biden signed into law. The provision in the plan that would have uh, started the process of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025, uh, that was actually uh, stripped out of the final version of the plan. Uh, But the Biden administration is looking at introducing it as a standalone piece of legislation somewhere down the road. Uh, and will bring it back into consideration uh, by the House and the Senate uh, accordingly. Uh, the Economic Policy Institute, a nonpartisan uh, think tank that analyzes government policies, uh, did a report on it, uh, and it came out uh, March 9th uh, by uh, David Cooper, Zane Mokebar, and Ben Zipperer of the EPI. And at the the head of the report, the report itself is about 39 pages, so obviously I'm not going to read the whole text of it. However, the summary of it illustrates what the impacts of this plan to raise the minimum wage uh, over the next five years uh, and and what what exactly it would do and what impacts it would have on the economy and in particular on the economy of the Uh, the poor and the working class uh, segments of the American population. So let me let me read through the summary and uh, then I'll give you my thoughts on it. Uh, The Raise the Wage Act of 2021 would help eliminate poverty level wages by raising the national minimum wage to $15 per hour by 2025. This report finds that the raise is long overdue and would deliver broad benefits to workers and the economy. And uh, the bullet points, it goes on to state, uh, the current federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour and has not been raised in over 10 years. A full-time federal minimum wage worker today earns 18% less than what her counterpart earned at the time of the last increase after adjusting for the rising cost of living uh, $15,880 annually in 2021 versus $18,458 in 2009. Uh, in 1968, a minimum waged worker earned $10.59 per hour in affla- inflation adjusted terms, 46% more than today's $7.25 federal minimum wage. That is, when you, when you correct the wage in 1968, uh, it's the equivalent of earning $10.59 an hour today. Uh, the minimum wage today would be over $22 per hour had it tracked productivity increases over the last five decades. The Raise the Wage Act of 2021, which phases in a $15 min- minimum wage by 2025, would raise the earnings of 32 million workers, or 21% of the workforce. Affected workers include those who would see their wages rise as the new minimum wage uh, exceeds their current hourly pay, 
and those who have a wage rate just above the new minimum wage who would receive a raise as employer pay scales are adjusted upward to reflect the new minimum wage. On average, an affected worker who works year-round would see an annual pay increase of about $3,300. In total, a $15 minimum wage would provide over $108 billion of additional wages in 2025 to affected workers. A national minimum wage of $15 delivers on a core demand of the civil rights movement. The March on Washington in 1963, uh, the March uh, on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, as it was known, demanded a $2 national minimum wage that would be the equivalent to $15 today after adjusting for inflation. Earnings would rise for nearly one in three black workers, 31%, and one in four Hispanic workers, 26%, compared with about one in five white workers. For black and Hispanic workers who worked year-round, the pay increase would uh, increase by at least $3,500. A $15 minimum wage by 2025 would raise the wages of at least 19 million essential and frontline workers. Essential and frontline workers constitute more than 60% of all workers who would see a pay increase. Workers who cannot work from home, who are more likely to be black, Latinx, and Native American, are the overwhelming majority of workers, almost nine out of every 10, who would receive pay raises under the Raise the Wage Act of 2021. That's a confusing thing to say. The Raise the Wage Act would help eliminate poverty wages. Raising the minimum wage to $15 in 2025 would lift up to 3.7 million, including an estimated 1.3 million children out of poverty. Raising the minimum wage to $15 would help ensure that more low-wage workers are paid enough to cover basic living expenses, i.e. a wage providing a modest yet adequate standard of living. As of 2021, virtually all urban and rural areas of the country, a single adult without children working full-time must earn more than $15 an hour to have enough to pay for housing and other basic living expenses. For individuals with children, year-round work at $15 wage in 2025 will still be inadequate to achieve basic economic security. Minimum wage increases have not led to significant job losses, and this is a key point. It's one that's argued quite frequently. Despite claims that raising the minimum wage would reduce job opportunities for vulnerable groups of workers, the best evidence shows that little to no job losses in the wake of minimum wage increases and net wage gain, even if job losses have occurred. These benefits explain why surveys show that the people most likely to support a minimum wage increase are unemployed people, people of color, and women. Minimum wage increases affect adults in their career building years who are helping to support their families, with women disproportionately benefiting from a pay boost. The average age of workers who would see a pay increase under the Raise the Wage Act is 35 years old. About 90% of those with increased wages would be adults age 20 or older. 
Most of the workers who would benefit are women at 59%, uh, even though men are the majority, uh, are a majority of the workforce, excuse me. More than half of those who would have higher pay work full time, again, 59%. Past research shows that these workers are often the primary earners for their families, producing the majority of their family's total income. So the report goes on to provide uh, further explanation and some charts and tables. I will put a link to it on the Facebook page uh, that will be out uh, by the time the show airs later today. And you can read the report in its entirety and review the charts uh, at, at your leisure. Uh, but, you know, this is something that is long overdue. I can tell you from personal experience when I started working uh, and you know got my first job in 1973, uh, I was making about $1.75 an hour, which in today's money would be still higher than the current minimum wage. It would be about $10 an hour or you know thereabouts, $9.80, something around there. Uh, the, the minimum wage has not kept pace with inflation. It has not kept, play, kept pace with cost of living increases. Uh, basically, it has remained fairly stagnant since 2009. And by doing so, it has hamstrung the ability of the, the working class in this country to keep pace with the increasing cost of living. So this, this bill, in my opinion, is vitally needed, it's long overdue, and it really is something that benefits every working class American, whether they are currently working for minimum wage or not. A couple of other points to mention about this bill. This bill would also increase the, the hourly pay for such uh, working people as uh, waiters, waitresses, uh, you know, servers in bars, bartenders, uh, people who work in the tip-based economy. Uh, many people who rely on tips to supplement their income actually earn an hourly wage that is a fraction of the federal minimum, and it's there and allowed be by law. So by increasing the minimum wage, the wages of these workers as well, who we now consider to be, you know, uh, uh, important uh, critical workers uh, would also be raised to a, a better living wage. So, you know, there is a broad segment of the population that would benefit from this bill. So, you know, one of the things that is, is happening is we're seeing a lot of, of words of pushback coming primarily from the right that this bill is going to you know, kill jobs in this country, which this study shows and cites other studies that shows that's not the case, uh, that it is going to force businesses out of business, also disproven by many studies over the past few years as this topic has been discussed, and you know, really uh, trying to paint a negative picture of the impacts of this bill when all of the econ economics show that it would be a major uh, boon to the working class segment of the American population. Uh, as I said, it would provide over $108 billion in additional wages in 2025 to those groups of workers. 
Uh, and and while you know on the face when it says it would be worth uh, and, and this varies depending on where you live, and one of the charts in the report uh, breaks this down by state and congressional district, uh, and the increases range from you know uh, uh, eleven or twelve hundred dollars a year in some rural and non-urban communities up to more than $4,000 a year in urban areas and other uh, high pay rate areas or segments of the country. While that may not seem like uh, a lot in aggregate, when you break down that we're talking about, you know, 100 to 300 extra dollars per month coming into the household, uh, that is, you know, groceries, that is a utility bill payment, uh, that is helping out with rent or mortgage. You know, it is, you know, paying for uh, school uniforms. You know, it, it is paying for all of these little uh, and not so little things that uh, people in the, the working class of this country struggle with mightily uh, right now. So, you know, we need to get in touch with our elected officials uh, we need to be talking with them at the state level, and we definitely need to be talking with our, our federal level elected officials and let them know in, in great numbers that we want to see this $15 minimum wage plan uh, put into action to pass the House, pass the Senate, and go to uh, President Biden's desk for his signature uh, so that this, this minimum wage can begin to be uh, impacted uh, as soon as this year. The provision in the bill is that the increases would begin uh, later on in 2021 and increase you know, in step fashion over the course of five years to get to the $15. As I said, it's long overdue uh, and it's vitally important to the health and benefit of the working class in this country. So something to uh, write down and communicate to your elected officials and let them know uh, how you feel on this and that you feel that this minimum wage bill needs to be uh, passed. And I included the state level politicians uh, because a, a lot of states uh, do have some leeway in what their minimum wage settings are. Uh, it, it cannot be lower than the federal minimum wage, but oftentimes it can be higher. Uh, there are also some states uh, that currently do have a, a higher minimum wage, uh, California being one and, and several others that have minimum wages that are, you know, at, at $12 or $10 an hour all the way up to 15 and even slightly more than that. So it is something that we need to take an action step on so let's, let's make sure that we get out and get in touch with our elected officials and let them know that uh, this is long overdue and it is something that they need to do. Staying on the, the subject of, uh, of, of politics and, and opinion, I uh, want to pivot a little bit to uh, a story that came out uh, last week that I really got to say really um, ticked me off. It made me mad. Uh, and this was an article in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel uh, from an interview with Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson. 
and you know he the the headline uh, states that you know Ron Johnson says Capitol attackers, referring to those that attacked the Capitol on January sixth, loved this country, but he would have felt unsafe if Black Lives Matter stormed the building instead. And I I heard that and I read this story and. You know, I'm just going to lead off by saying to uh, the Republican elected officials out there, y'all need to stop. All right. You need to recognize who it was that that broke into that building. Yes, there were um, black people in the crowd. Yes, there were people of color in the crowd. But the overwhelming, the high 90 percent plus majority of people that broke into that building were white people all right so let let's just get that straight let's stop the bs about playing the what if game you know well what if it was black lives matter no stop all right y'all need to stop it and we need to communicate and let them know that we want them to stop it this is ridiculous uh just look at the pictures and the pictures tell the story But anyway, getting into the article, as I said, this just aggravated me to no end. Um, So this was published on March 12th. And again, this the newspaper is the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. So you can look it up uh, on their website. And it it reads as follows. Uh, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson is facing accusations of racism after saying a predominantly white crowd that stormed the U.S. Capitol in January didn't worry him, but that he might have been concerned if they had been supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it quotes him as saying, quote, I know these were people who love this country that truly respect law enforcement would never do anything to break the law, so I wasn't concerned, end quote, Johnson said about supporters of former President Donald Trump, who marched to the U.S. Capitol to overturn a presidential election and triggered an assault that left five people dead, 140 police officers injured, and windows smashed and other damage. And it goes on to quote, Now, had the tables been turned, and Joe, this is going to get me in trouble, had the tables been turned and President Trump won the election and tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa, I might have been a little concerned, Johnson said during an in- interview with syndicated radio show Joe Pags Pagliarulo. What, quote, what white people love this country and black people don't, that's exactly what he's saying, uh, quoted from Senator LaTanya Johnson, a Democrat from Milwaukee who is black. Johnson, who is not related to Ron Johnson, said it wasn't Black Lives Matter protesters who triggered an insurrection that left five people dead, including a police officer. For him to say something as racist as that, continuing the quote, she said, it, it's totally racist comment And the insult to injury is that he didn't mind saying it in the position that he holds because for some reason that's just deemed as acceptable behavior for people who live in and uh, are elected officials in this state. Over 10,000 of these, nearly 95%, involve peaceful protesters. Fewer than 570 or approximately 
5% involved demonstrators engaging in violence, the report said. So, as I said, when I, I heard this um, on one of the, the broadcast stations that I, I track, um, it, it was one of those head-snapping what moments. Um, so, Senator Johnson says that, you know, he felt comfortable uh, that the, the insurrectionists that broke in were white people, uh, that he would have been uncomfortable if it had been black people or Antifa. Uh, if I had the opportunity to, to ask questions of Senator Johnson, one of the first ones I, I would ask him would be, so if you were so comfortable why did you leave the Senate chamber? If, if those were your people, if they were your homeboys, you know, if they were, were your folk, uh, why did you leave? You know, they would have probably given you a hero's welcome, right? Uh, or, or, or what? Uh, the reality is, if he hadn't left, they would have at, at best taken him hostage against uh, ending the, the vote to certify the election, or at worst, killed him, as they were trying to do with Vice President Mike Pence. So, you know, it, it, it's just, again, this, this what-if-ism where, you know, anytime the insurrection is brought up, people, you know, especially people on the right, jump to, well, you know, if, if this could have been worse if it was Black Lives Matter or Antifa, uh, or, you know, if, if this had been a black protest, uh, you know, it, 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 it would have been squashed much quicker. There, there, you know, there would have been a larger police force, if, you know, or any of these what-if scenarios. Uh, the, the answer to that is it wasn't, okay? It was a large predominantly overwhelmingly white crowd that broke into the Capitol building of the United States of America and were actively looking for elected officials and the, the sitting vice president of the United States in particular, along with the Speaker of the House and others in the, the uh, chain of succession to the presidency, in order to kidnap or even kill them and force a, a end to the vote certification and maintain the 45th president as president of the United States. Um, you know, this is a crazy assertion. It is, you know, non-factual, nonsensical. And as I've already said, uh, Republicans, Republican leaders, you need to stop. You need to accept what has happened, recognize the truth that you saw along with all the rest of us with your own eyes. We were all glued to our television sets or our computer screens or our tablet screens just about all day long watching this crowd ransacking our seat of power in this country and, and creating havoc and mayhem, beating up police officers, killing police officers, uh, leading to uh, the, the deaths of, of five people, uh, and you know, just, just a total uh, travesty of lawlessness and, and so forth 
from a group of people, no less, who profess their love of the Constitution and their love and respect for police officers. They showed that respect by putting 140 of them in a hospital, putting two of them in the morgue, uh, and you know, creating a a a post-traumatic uh, pandemic uh, of of itself in the the Capitol Police and the uh, Metropolitan District Police in Washington D.C. So your argument and your your supposition and your what if uh, that it had been you know a a group of color and Black Lives Matter or Antifa or any other group that you want to name, uh, you know, holds no water. It was a group of white people. It was a group that contained elements from the Proud Boys, from, you know, other uh, white supremacist groups, the Oath Keepers, among others. And, you know, face up to the reality. Accept what has happened. Work with the, the lawmakers to get to the bottom of this as the investigations are doing and work with them to make sure that something like this does not happen again. Uh, it, it is not love of country. It is love of your race that drove this. It is love of uh, one man uh, who tried to institute uh, autocratic rule in this country that led to this. So... That's my point for this week. That will do it for the show. I'd love to know what you think uh, about uh, my, my comments. I'd love to know what you think about the show. Please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and let me know what you think. I always uh, appreciate getting emails and comments. Uh, I will post uh, a copy uh, or a link to the article as well as the other materials that I talked about on this week's show to the, the Facebook page. And that is at facebook.com slash fired up radio. And I invite you to uh, read the content, to subscribe to the page, uh, to like the page. And, you know, I look forward to speaking to all of you again uh, in the next show coming up. In the meantime, please stay safe. Please wear your mask. Please maintain your distancing and do all of the things we need to do. And when the opportunity arises for you to get the vaccine, please, please go get the vaccine. Uh, it's not only protecting you, it's protecting all of us as well. That's going to wrap the show for this week. You've been listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. We do appreciate it. Take care, everyone, and I will talk to you again in seven days. Wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman 
calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late